Thanks for tuning in to High Green, the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society's official podcast. High Green is funded by your membership in the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society, and any opinions expressed throughout the show are solely those of the owner. We hope you enjoyed today's show, and as always, if you're interested in learning more about our organization, you can visit our website, www.bmrrhs.org. Perhaps this story hasn't been told in B&M circles, but no. it's a B&M story and it's a good one. And the next thing you know, we hear 119 getting out of town with his steam engine working like the hell. He's going up by way of Rutland. felt it only appropriate to open today's episode on the Wolfboro Railroad with some authentic sounds from the Wolfboro Railroad. You just heard Wolfboro Railroad 262 number 250 charging up Clouds Hill on the way to Sanbornville in 1981. Special thanks to Connor and Cullen Marr of Wolfboro for allowing us to digitize their copy of the final record, Branch Line Action on the Wolfboro Railroad. And now, without further ado, the feature segment with Brian Dame as organized by committee member Neil Rousseau. Hello to all our listeners and welcome to another High Green podcast of the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society. In this episode, we'll be talking about the Wolfboro Railroad, a short line tourist railroad that ran on a former Boston and Maine branch line from the early 70s to the mid 80s. Our guest with me today is Brian Dame, who was involved with the Wolfboro when it was in operation. For some of us like me, we never got to see this railroad in operation and only memories of this operation remain. Join us as we chat with Brian about the history of the Wolfboro Railroad and relive some of the railroad's past. Brian, welcome to the High Green Podcast. Well, thank you and hello everyone. Brian, what was your position with the Wolfboro in the time it operated and what made you get involved? Well, I guess you could say that I was a general laborer, if you will, and I uh, worked out of the Fernald engine house. Uh, I did a little bit of track work. I did some car repair and a little bit, a very little bit of locomotive repair, including uh, even working on the 250, the Baldwin steam engine. And how I got involved is an interesting story. I uh, am originally from Rochester, New Hampshire. I attended Spalding High School and there was a teacher, I was told, who worked for the Wolfboro Railroad. 
and this would have been in 1975. I came to be friends with Brian Beeler, who was a uh, distributive education teacher, uh, teaching business uh, courses. And in the summertime, he was uh, a full-time employee for the Wolfboro, a fireman, an engineer, and even did a little track work now and then. Everyone would do whatever they were called upon to do. So it was through this uh, connection at Spalding High School that I started going up there in 1975 during the summer and helping out as a volunteer. And that led to the summer of 76 where I was primarily a trackman out of Laconia on the Central Division. I also did signal work. And then as time went on, I moved on myself. I went to college, and and meanwhile, the Wolfboro changed hands, and I drifted apart. But it was basically a summer and weekend employment for me in the 75-76 period. Now, around 1975, is that when the Wolfboro was formed, or was it already in operation when you joined? It was already formed. The Halleck brothers primarily Donald, and also his brother, I believe, Roger, they uh, organized a company, Wolfboro Railroad Company, uh, to take over ownership of the branch line from the Boston and Maine and run it as a common carrier tourist railroad. So they had uh, started assembling equipment and uh, personnel, as well as the company itself, uh, in 1972. And that coincided with the 100th anniversary of the opening of the line. Uh, the Wolfboro Branch, or the original Wolfboro Railroad, was opened in 1872, and it was backed by the Eastern Railroad. Uh, the Eastern, in turn, had become a a primary backer of the Portsmouth, Great Falls, and Conway, or later the Conway branch of the B&M. And the Wolfboro was built out of Sanbornville, New Hampshire, on the Conway branch, uh, 12 miles into Wolfboro, again opening in 1872. So it was important for Don Halleck to have an operation of some sort in 1972, and they did run some service even before they took ownership of the line. Now, what was the uh, main reason is they wanted to start it, just to keep the line going, or was there another idea for it? I think that Donald uh, had a, a lot of insight into preserving a short line for tourism, he was one of the initial movers and shakers of the Strasburg Railroad in Pennsylvania. And he somehow came to know the Wolfboro branch and uh, decided to uh, devote his life to preserving that railroad and, uh, and uh, preserving the old-time railroad flavor. And anyone who has been to Strasburg 
and been around the steam locomotives and the open platform coaches and uh, and all the other equipment of that era, they I'm sure that they've gotten a feel of what it was like, the smell of the oil and the coal and the sounds and the sights and everything. Donald wanted to recreate that in New Hampshire. So when it was formed as the Wolfboro Railroad from the Boston and Maine, which came first, the freight or the tourism? When it was first formed, that is to say in the 1972 reincarnation? Yes. Okay. The 1972 version of the Wolfboro Railroad was clearly for the tourist dollar. Most prominent freight that was shipped was a product called Excelsior, which was wood shavings used for packing fragile uh, items. Long before packing peanuts uh, came along and styrofoam and bubble wrap and all that, uh, wood shred was used to package created merchandise. And a fellow by the name of Bad Terry had a mill in Wolfboro Falls that his father and I believe even grandfather ran that produced Excelsior using machines that were invented or at least refined by his grandfather. And although the mill could be water-powered, uh, they did have a stationary steam engine to provide the power to operate the machinery. It was walking back in time. It was a wonderful museum, and sadly, it ultimately burned. But he was still putting out bales of Excelsior, loading up freight cars, boxcars, and shipping it out on the Boston and Maine, and so that business carried over to the Wolfboro. Is that the only customer on the line? Did you have other ones? There were other deliveries during the, uh, uh, the Halleck years. I offhand can't recall with certainty, but I want to say that some coal came in for other uh, fuel dealers, uh, not just for the railroad. Of course, the railroad had to get its coal by rail. But uh, Excelsior and coal strikes me as the only two commodities that were handled by the Wolfboro Railroad in the 70s, that is. When was the uh, freight ending? In the 80s? And just, it was a tourist road after that? or I don't know as though there was much uh, Excelsior shipped after 1977, I would say. I also wonder if Donald Halleck sold it as a common carrier. I don't know if the new owners kept the common carrier status. So I'm not sure if the Wolfboro hauled any freight as a common carrier during the Hilson years, if you will. So what, what year roughly was it when the Halleck era ended and who was the next era? Operations of the Wolfboro Railroad wound down 1977 and 1978. 
And uh, when the season ended on October, it was decided not to reopen in 1979. And at that time, they applied for abandonment. And there was some interest in keeping the line going as a tourist railroad. And a company called Wolfboro Steam Railroad Corporation was formed. And I believe that a Mr. Dwight Hilson was a primary mover and shaker behind that organization. Anyway, the line was idle in 1979. And so the line had to have yet one more rebirth, if you will, in 1980. And the steam engine, the 250, had to be retubed before the 1981 season. So there were lots of mechanical problems. And they did try to get a hold of some other power. They brought a former B&M Alco switcher in. And they got the rails shiny again. And it was a while uh, before they were operating the 250, but they did. What I don't have is, when did that operation come to an end? I think it was around 85 when that that newer operation ended. I think that was when the railroad was sold. Certainly possible. Mm -hmm. The Wolfboro did indeed have the 25-ton Plymouth engine uh, in the early days to move freight and move passengers. But Donald had secured a 1926 Baldwin 262 for use on the Wolfboro Railroad. And this was a well-proportioned, well-rated locomotive for the line. And the locomotive was built as the number 250 for the Bonhomme, Hattiesburg, and Southern Railroad down in Mississippi. And it had uh, hauled lumber down there for decades, and it found its way up to the Wanamaker, Kempton, and Southern, if I remember correctly. That was a tourist railroad in Pennsylvania, and it was stored uh, at the Strasburg for a while, and when all the preparations were done, it was hauled by... Conrail, I guess at the time, or Penn Central, I'm not sure, come to think of it, Uh, up through Pennsylvania and New York, uh, through Geneva, and it met the water level route in the vicinity of Geneva and hauled across the water level route and onto the west end of the Boston and Maine uh, in in freight train service, uh, dead in tow. It was not steamed up, of course. And it made its way up to Dover and onto the Conway branch and delivered to Sambrinville. And uh, it was put in service and it was a a fine looking steam locomotive. As I say, it was well-sized. There were some other tourist railroads in the area that had 262s, but they had uh, small uh, boiler ratings, and they just didn't have the 
the weight and attractive effort and the steam generating generating capability that 250 had and and at the same time 250 wasn't too uh, large a locomotive either it size can work uh, work against you in both directions but the steam locomotive saw some uh, good service in Wolfboro there was one day that they were trying to remove the throttle valve from the steam dome and the steam dome is one of the domes on top of the boiler uh, the leading dome is a sand dome. The next dome was the steam dome, and that's a place where the throttle valve's intake could be kept above the water to keep water from entering the cylinders. And the cover was removed. They took off, oh, perhaps 30 nuts off the studs that hold the cover to the steam dome. And they were looking down in there, and below the throttle valve, there's a U-shaped yoke that holds the throttle valve down into a seat. And the seat is on the end of the pipe that leads up to the spoke box, where the steam flows to get distributed to the valves and the cylinders. I was uh, watching them take a look down into the dome. They couldn't figure out how they were going to remove some wedge-shaped keys from this yoke that would allow them to remove the throttle valve. And at one point, the master mechanic, James Moore, looked down and around at a few of us standing around, and he looked at me, and he said, you're the smallest one, get up here. And my job was to crawl down into the steam dome and take a hammer and try to drive out those wedges. And I ended up basically laying flat on my back on top of the flues. I had to really work my way down into that steam dome around the throttle valve. It was quite a, quite a chore. And as I look at myself today, I could never do it again. I was, I was in my teenage years at the time, I think. So I somehow got down in there and I couldn't get a good swing because of everything being in the way, cramped quarters. But finally they took the hammer out and I, with a little bit of help, got myself out of there and they ended up torch cutting the keys and replacing them with new. But uh, if you ever want to see what a steam locomotive looks like, that's not the way to do it. Nowadays, we have those cameras that fit down there very nicely. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. <laughs> wow. Most of us today wouldn't fit in that thing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, would, I would never fit. A lot of good eating. <laughs> <laughs> On the Central Division, the uh, Wolfboro Railroad looked at a pile driver sitting on the public delivery track at Tilton Freight House. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and to be technical, Tilton Freight House is actually in Northfield, New Hampshire, just across the river. But there was a scrap dealer down there in Franklin and Northfield, Tony Turgeon, as I recall. He had bought a Central Vermont pile driver, which I imagine the CV used extensively in maintaining trestles up around Alberg, Vermont, Rouse's Point, that area. He had intended on scrapping it, and it was sitting in Northfield at the Tilden Freight House. At some point in time, somebody had the bright idea of hauling it up to Lakeport, so for another point in time, it sat in Lakeport before getting cut up for scrap. But the Wolfboro Railroad looked at the tender of the 250 that came from uh, the Wanamaker, Kempton, and Southern, and decided that it was holding up to the very name tender. It was quite tender. It was starting to rust out and leak. It had all sorts of issues. And so they bought this pile driver's tender, which was an additional three, four, five feet longer, slightly longer, and they swapped out tenders for the 250. So if you go to Edaville today, you have a a Baldwin locomotive with a tender of, un, at least to me, unknown origin other than Central Vermont pile driver. Hmm. Brian, what was the intent of moving the 250 up to Lincoln? Eddie and Brenda Clark had every intention of operating it on the Pemajawasset Valley branch. And the locomotive would have to be rebuilt. Uh, There were uh, some issues with the crown sheet and the, uh, well, the, the, the flu sheets, I should say. So it was going to be capital intensive. And in the early years, the Hobo uh, Railroad was uh, doing quite well using another Wolfboro locomotive, the 1186, an Alco S3, which was converted to an S1, but that's another story. And also the Lackawanna uh, coaches, the, uh, the the former self-propelled uh, Pullman standard coaches that came from the Lackawanna. So they had plenty of equipment, and there was interest expressed by, I believe, Jack Flagg uh, from the Edaville group to acquire the 250, and that's what happened. It was trucked down to South Carver where it rests today. There was one day that Brian Beeler and I were told that our job was going to be to jack up a boxcar and remove the truck from the uh, end of it, one end of it, so that the truck could be broken down and the wheel sets could be used on the steam engine's tender. Now, it so happened that the 
uh, tender had wheel sets with bearings the same size as some Norton Company boxcars that the railroad had bought from the, directly from the Norton Company, and and I believe that they were shipped up by rail, and they were uh, friction-bearing trucks. They were arch bar trucks. They were they were old wood sided or wood sheath box cars, steel frame, steel brace, uh, wood sheathing, arch bar, friction bearing uh, box cars, mm-hmm. and they were bought for storage and also for parts. And the day came that we were to take the truck out from under one end of the box car so that the wheels could be put under the tender of the 250. Well, the job was accomplished with the use of a 50-ton car jack. And I don't know if many people have handled a 50-ton car jack, but I think anyone who ever did wonders what the 50 tons is for. Is that the capacity of the jack or is that the weight of the jack? It sure feels like the weight when you're moving it around. But anyways, we managed to get it underneath the center frame of the car, and we got a piece of plywood in there so that there was no metal against metal. You don't want it to slip. You want it to sink into the wood and keep from slipping. And since this was a mechanical jack and not a pneumatic jack, we then proceeded to spend an hour or two, it seemed, (laughs) operating a lever to raise the jack up. And we would go in about five or so minute shifts. I would work the jack for a while and then I'd get out from underneath the car and Brian got under there and he'd go for five or 10 minutes and then I'd go back under and whatnot. And we did this for a long time. And at one point, when I came out from under the car, I happened to lean against the uh, center post of the engine house. This was inside the engine house at Fernald. And I was surprised that the post moved on me. I almost fell on the floor because it swung aside. (laughs) And I looked up and I wiggled the post. I didn't know what was going on. And I walked around the end of the box car took a look up there and this car was so old it had an had a hand brake wheel above the roof and unfortunately the crew had spotted the car with that brake wheel directly under one of the trusses to the roof of the engine house and for the last half hour along with the box car we were jacking the roof up <laughs> but it all settled back down <laughs> the engine house is still standing to this day, so yeah. I guess we're okay. I remember you were looking at uh, at the equipment that they have, so let me see if I can uh, get a little pause, and then I'll make mention of the 25-tonner. Mm-hmm. One of the original pieces of equipment that Donald brought up to the Wolfboro Railroad was a 25-ton Plymouth switcher that came from the Stewartstown Railroad down in Pennsylvania. And it was numbered, it was renumbered by the Wolfboro to number nine. And this engine 
is the engine that uh, would work as hard as it could to pull uh, two central New Jersey coaches up the 3% grade from Fernald up to Cotton Valley. Mm-hmm. It really was a long stretch of steep grade. It was a, it was a tough run. But to house this locomotive, they built an engine house in Wolfboro, down in the village behind the Wolfboro station. And it was built on a, on a uh, spur that had previously gone into the power plant where uh, coal and perhaps later where oil was delivered to generate electricity. They built this structure knowing that they would also be building an engine house for the steam locomotive and other equipment out at Fernald. It was a small building. They knew it would not last long at that location. And so after the Fernald engine house was uh, built and put in service, they took this structure apart carefully loaded the walls and the and the roof sections onto a flat car, brought it out to Fernald and set it up again, repurposed as the Fernald station. And that building stands to this day. The Wakefield station, that was that was custom built as well, correct? Right next to Route 16? That's right. Route 16 was uh, rebuilt and redeveloped in a major way in the 1950s, I believe. And before being uh, rebuilt, there was never a road out there. And the Boston and Maine put a crew to work. They had to raise the track up five or six feet where the crossing is today. And they did this so that the highway didn't have to be cut lower than it already is. I think if you look at the topography of that crossing, Route 16 at Wakefield, you'll see that it it sets down into the ground, into the earth, into the hillside a little bit. The highway comes down, the railroad had to come up to meet it. And I had a uh, distant relative who was a uh, patrol foreman when he retired. Uh, He said that he had worked on that job, raising the track up. So there was never a station there. The Wakefield station on the Conway branch was located further up the Conway branch. There's a crossing where the back road to Sanbronville leaves Route 16 mm-hmm. up by Palmer Motel, if memory serves me correctly. Brian, is that steam engine still around? The 250 is on static display at Edaville in South Carver, Massachusetts. It was bought from the Wolfboro Railroad by the Hobo Railroad. And it was trucked from Fernald to Lincoln in about 1986, if I recall correctly, when the hobo was constructing the station and yard at Lincoln. They also bought Laconia coaches 
but those coaches were redirected to California and did not make it to Lincoln. So there was a, a change of, of plan on somebody's behalf. I've seen pictures of, uh, there was a coach, I think it was next to or behind the Wakefield station for a while. Um, it always looked like it was in kind of rough condition. I remember seeing it might've been a Bangor and a Rustic wooden coach. Um, do you have any idea whatever happened to that? The, uh, the coach that was at Wakefield station was a wooden frame Jackson and Sharp passenger coach that could never be used uh, in any service on a, uh, certainly not on a common carrier because of the wooden frame. Mind you that there were many wooden coaches that had a steel underframe and they could be used, but not this one. It was uh, set aside as a static display at Wakefield and after the demise of the railroad, it was sold to a private individual. I understand that it was never restored, but rather it was scrapped in place. Mm -hmm. That's what I had thought, yeah. So Wolfboro acquired a couple of steel coaches that were from New Jersey. I believe the Central Railroad of New Jersey, or CNJ. And these coaches were used on the Wolfboro branch and then they were later shipped to Concord and used on the Central Division where they were painted blue with yellow stripe, which was in contrast to the yellow with blue stripes of the RS3 locomotive that pulled them. One of the coaches was lettered for the Boston, Concord, and Montreal, and the other was lettered for the Pemigewasset Valley which were the historical railroads that the Wolfboro was operating over there on their central division. Back in Wolfboro, that left them with two Laconia coaches and a Laconia combine, if memory serves correct. And these were cars that had come out of Boston and Maine work train service and had been very nicely restored uh, by the Wolfboro people. They had another assortment of flat cars and box cars uh, in Wolfboro that were old, that were usable for storage and for uh, distribution of track material and for the um, for the flat cars. While we're on the topic of um, coaches, I did, I did have one thing I wanted to bring up, Brian, um, kind of a society connection, um, which I don't think it was officially owned by the Wolfboro Railroad, but um, Combine 1244, which is now in Lowell on display uh, with the 410, uh, spent a good amount of time up there at Wolfboro Falls, I think owned by Dick Mauser. Is that right? That's correct. There was a Combine... Uh, that was owned by Richard Mauser of Rochester. And Richard was a part-time employee for the Wolfboro, who later became a full-time employee uh, on the Central Division. And he was uh, working slowly towards restoring it up in Wolfboro. And uh, 
it would be more convenient to him to have it in Rochester. And so at one point in time, the Boston and Maine hauled it down to Rochester and uh, brought it down the Gonic branch and put it on the sidetrack to the uh, Kachiko Bottling Company building, which later was a plywood company and may be a carpet company today. But that is located uh, at the end of Columbus Avenue where the Gonic branch crossed the uh, Hancock Street, I want to say, at the end of Lowell Street. Mm-hmm. So that that uh, passenger car, that combine, sat there for many years, and Dick continued to work on it bit by bit. And how it got to the society from Richard, I'm not sure, but... Uh, uh, that's a little bit about that car. What was the um, deal with the Central Division? Well, the Central Division of the Wolfboro Railroad was the Boston and Maine's White Mountain Branch, which ran from Concord up to Lincoln, New Hampshire. The White Mountains Branch came about from the White Mountains Route Main Line, Concord, Laconia, Plymouth, to Woodsville, as well as the Pemajawasset Valley branch from Plymouth up to Lincoln. And in the early 1970s, some heavy rainstorms and other flooding created a lot of washouts north of Meredith. And the Boston and Maine had seen the business north of Meredith dry up with the closure of the paper mill in Lincoln. So they basically uh, embargoed the line north of Meredith. There was a lot of political pressure to get the paper mill open again. And instead of uh, using fresh product from the woods, they were going to be doing a lot of recycling. There might've been some pulp brought in from other sources, but for the most part, Uh, There was uh, a lot of recycled cardboard and newsprint that came in by rail. The state was behind it to the point that the state agreed to take on ownership of the line from Concord Yard Limits north and find a designated operator to run the railroad with the potential for tourist trains in Laconia running up to Weir's Beach and Meredith, uh, this interested the Wolfboro Railroad greatly. They were already a common carrier, and so they entered into a uh, an agreement for a one-year uh, interim operator for the rail line. The, uh, the mill did reopen, There was a fair amount of freight being hauled up to Lincoln and back, and there were several customers along the way. For uh, the summer of 1976, tourist trains of the Wolfboro Railroad did indeed operate from Laconia Station up to Lakeport and Weir's Beach and Meredith, and there were perhaps two round trips a day. 
And now at that point in time, I was doing track work mostly. So uh, I couldn't honestly tell you the frequency of the trains or, or what the schedule looked like. But they, uh, they had a pretty good business. It was developing quite nicely. They even did some excursions for uh, perhaps the Mass Bay Railroad enthusiasts. I want to say that they brought them up to Lincoln on one occasion. There was also a branch line ramble, which uh, ran from Laconia uh, up to Lakeport and then on to the old Lakeshore branch. Mind you, at the time, there was propane going out to a distributor on the Lakeshore branch. And also there was uh, lumber and plywood going out to Grossman's. And so we were actually operating trains all the way out beyond McDonald's and Burger King on Union Avenue or the old Route 3 and uh, right up to the uh, end of the track. Of, of course, that track used to go down to Alton Bay. It was part of the Lakeshore branch or Lakeshore division, if you will. And when the train was done with a lunch stop at McDonald's, they headed south and went down to Winnesquam, Lockmere, and Tilton, and then went down the Franklin and Tilton branch, but they couldn't go over the upside-down covered bridge, so they didn't quite make it down to Franklin. But they headed on back, and that was the end of that one-time excursion. Now, were both operations um, running together at the same time, or was the Central Division something that came after the Wolfboro finally um, ended? Both operations ran simultaneously, and there were uh, some people who had gotten a start over in Wolfboro who then, if you will, transferred, although, it, again, it was you work where you're needed, but uh, there were several people whose jobs were basically shifted over to Laconia, where at Lakeport there was an engine house built. And uh, this was the two-stall wooden engine house that stands today. It was built right next to the one remaining stall of the brick engine house that the Boston and Maine had retired many years ago. How long did um, you guys run on the Lakeshore branch? Operations on the Lakeshore branch went through uh, Wolfboro operations through the, oh gosh, perhaps four years of Goodwin Railroad operation, the year and a half of North Stratford Railroad operations and into New England Southern operations. So I would say that propane and lumber products were getting delivered on the Lakeshore branch right up until 1984 or 1985 at least. And that probably would have been in the New England Southern era, correct? That's right. And I should add that that was uh, perhaps the business Route 3. Today, I think it's Route 175 or such. But uh, there were, that's the crossing where Burger King used to be located right on the water. 
and uh, where McDonald's was on the east side of Union Avenue. Uh, McDonald's was built on the site of a fuel dealer uh, who used to get shipments of fuel oil, kerosene, and perhaps even gasoline by rail. So there was a spur that went into that property. And many years after McDonald's was built there, there was still a turnout, a switch stand, and two rails leading into the pavement of the parking lot, heading right to the drive-up window. And time again, I thought of taking a motor car and running it across the pavement, but (laughs) easier to say than do. When the state decided that it would indeed take ownership of the line, the mechanism by which they did so was eminent domain. There was a notice of eminent domain taking that basically listed all the valuation section map numbers uh, from starting in Concord at the yard limit sign, which at the time was just north of Concord Lumber. Now that area has been redeveloped and the trackage relocated. But the property from there north was taken, and I do believe that the F&T, the Franklin and Tilton branch, uh, from uh, Northfield down into Franklin was included in that, as was the Lakeshore mile and a half or so of the Lakeshore branch. And along with the original Boston, Concord, and Montreal main line to Plymouth, the Pemajawasset Valley was included in that taking. And when you go up into Lincoln, the Boston and Maine owned the trackage from North Woodstock to Lincoln. It was about a mile of trackage that was built by J.E. Henry, the lumber baron that built the mill at Lincoln. He had to build a railroad before the railroad would serve his mill. He had to deed it over to the railroad. But all the yard trackage associated with the East Branch in Lincoln was still owned by the lumber concerns and not by the Boston and Maine. That is why there is to this day uh, trackage leading up behind several businesses in the Lincoln area surrounded today by development, condominiums and whatnot, a a wastewater treatment plant, a strip mall. This trackage was included in the taking, but uh, it's now kind of isolated. I've actually always wondered about that little segment of trackage up there in Lincoln. That's a fascinating fact right there. Yeah, I have a copy of the, uh, the document the taking. And uh, it's a handy piece of paper to have when we're dealing with neighbors and and others who say one thing about the property when we can say something else. When I was working on the Wolfboro branch, one of the tasks that I was often assigned was fire patrol, which was riding a motor car behind the steam train. 
and we had Indian pumps, Indian tanks, if you will, with the uh, with the uh, straps to go over our shoulder, and the pump to put out fires. And in all my time operating as fire patrol, the only fire that ever happened was on one run where for some reason I was delayed. I couldn't clear an opposing movement and I had to wait. And lo and behold, it was the opposing movement that found the fire and put it out, not me. That opposing move, incidentally, was the the wooden rail car, the number 10 rail car, which was affectionately called the peanut roaster. One of the pieces of equipment that Donald Halleck had gotten for the Wolfboro uh, branch was this wooden combine. And it was initially built as a three-foot gauge combine. Somewhere along its history, it was standard gauged. And somewhere else, it was given a a gasoline uh, engine and made a self-propelled rail car. It was initially on the Lancaster, Oxford, and Southern Railroad. And Donald brought it up to New Hampshire and it became the Wolfboro number 10. And that rail car was based out of Sanbornville and it would have an opposing schedule where it would meet the steam train at Cotton Valley. And as I look at the uh, uh, timetable, I see that I've got timetable number five, which was effective June 28th to September 7th, 1975. And this is a single sheet of paper that went into my rule book and it was folded up and somehow I've managed to hold on to it. The westbound trains started at 10.05 in the morning when train 23 with the peanut roaster headed over to Wolfboro. And in uh, 37 minutes, uh, traveled the entire route. It then returned as train 26 to Sanbornville. And then when it left again for Wolfboro, I do believe that it met train 102. Uh, yeah, I think I've got that right. So they were meeting, they were weaving two trains in and amongst themselves, a steam train with 250 and the rail car, number 10. And they were making, it looks like three round trips with the rail car and two round trips with the steam engine. The Wolfboro issued its own rule book, which was typed up and mimeographed and it had the basic rules that were from all the uniform code of operating rules from all sorts of railroads. 
tailor, tailored for short line operation. Also, uh, some of the rules were tailored towards steam locomotive operations. Ryan, was, was, that obviously was back before NORAC and G-Corps, correct? That's correct. That's back in the days when the B&M, I think, was still on its 1962 uh, pocket size rule book, or 62, 1967 maybe. Mm -hmm. One of the subjects that you put down in the talking points that you sent me uh, was some of the people involved. Mm-hmm. And I have a list of names that I'll go down through. And it's by no means complete, but I'll do my best to uh, put some uh, memories to the people, to the names. Donald Halleck and his wife, Catherine, or Kay, uh, moved to Wolfboro for the operation and also active with the formation of the 1972 Wolfboro Railroad was Donald's brother, Roger, whom I didn't get to know very well. But there were several former railroaders as well as local rail fans that uh, put in time on the Wolfboro. Some of the more notable names that come up would be Charlie Ruff. I forget what railroad he worked for, possibly the Pennsylvania or the Long Island, but he had been an engineer in the days of steam, and he came up and and, uh, did a lot of operating. Uh, Pop Smith, Willard Pop Smith, who I seem to remember as being 80 years old in 1981. He was a conductor that was uh, well known and uh, (laughs) well liked. I should also mention that Donald Halleck himself would be conductor on many of the trains and he did a great job with the public. I remember that when they started running trains, they were going over a brook just beyond Fernald and he'd say that the bridge needed work. We're gonna go over the bridge when I say so I want everyone to lift their feet so it's not as heavy on the bridge. (laughs) And he would go through the gyrations of having everyone raise their feet while going over the bridge. There was a Brad Williamson who is still in the Brookfield, New Hampshire area. Brad was a fireman and an engineer in the early years. And I think Brad stayed with the railroad even through the uh, the the uh, the Hilson years after Don Halleck sold the railroad. Another fireman and engineer was Sam Langley. Sam was out of Boscoin, as I recall. There are some names that 
come up uh, that all B&M Historical Society members will remember. I'm, I'm referring to Howard Boothroyd and Russ Monroe. Mm-hmm. They were up there quite a bit. I mentioned Thad Berry as running the Excelsior Mill in Wolfboro Falls. And Thad himself ended up working a lot on the railroad as a motorman on the number 10, uh, doing uh, light mechanical repairs and whatnot. For the heavier mechanical repairs, as well as locomotive engineer, there was James Moore. James was from uh, Ossipee Aggregates. He was mechanic over there, and he would go on to work for uh, the Central Division and also carry over to Goodwin Railroad after the Central Division was dissolved. He'd continue working on the White Mountains branch for the Goodwin Railroad and North Stratford Railroad. One volunteer that comes to mind is Dane Malcolm. Dane is well known for his photography, which includes Wolfboro branch photography, but uh, he uh, did a lot of work on the restoration of the Laconia coaches. I remember uh, that there was a local retiree, a retired track foreman, Cecil Knight. Cecil uh, and his wife Dorcas lived in Samarinville, and Dorcas was a ticket agent off and on. Cecil would lend a hand with track work and also operations. Uh, it was one of his favorite stunts to put torpedoes down in front of people in hopes of scaring them, either either uh, when they were running the rail car or a steam locomotive or whatever. He'd always find it very amusing when somebody was startled with torpedoes going off. And one day, Brian Beeler said to me, we got to get Cecil. Here's what I want you to do. So he had me put torpedoes underneath the number 10, uh, directly behind the second axle. And at this location, Cecil wouldn't see them in front of him as he was taking off. He wouldn't see them as he walked around the car because they were so close to the wheels. And lo and behold, he hopped in the number 10 to take it back to Samarinville. And I had the pleasure of seeing him jump up. Every bone in his body went up (laughs) six inches. I finally got him and the conductor, Brian Beeler, on that job. He was was absolutely delighted with the situation. (laughs) So... There were many other names. Uh, I remember Arthur Robinson. I remember um, uh, uh, two locals that uh, went on to railroad for the Boston and Maine, or, uh, which later became, of course, Guilford. Uh, Rick Libby and 
Edwin Garrett. Uh, Rick went into the engineering department, and Edwin went into operations as a conductor. They uh, cut their teeth, as many did, up there on the Wolfboro branch. I remember also Warren Hay, and I don't recall what he did, but uh, another name that comes to mind is Charlie Tam. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what Charlie's background was other than he was an amateur radio operator. And Charlie set up the Wolfboro Railroad with a radio license. And uh, believe it or not, that gas-powered rail car made of wood uh, was radio-equipped. <laughs> so who would have thought it? Right. Now, let me work into another story. Hey, Brian, real quick. Yep. Who would you say started that whole uh, lift your feet going over the bridge thing up at Wolfboro? Donald Halleck. Donald? Oh, I find that interesting because they still do that down at the Strasburg. You ride their trains. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what. Uh, Donald Halleck was common to both. It would be interesting to know if he started it down there and they still do it. <laughs> Uh, or if it's something that somebody else started and he picked it up and brought it to New Hampshire. That, that would be an interesting uh, story to find out, to clarify, because I think on that little short line there, they only have like one bridge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and if anyone doesn't believe that these things, that these little peculiar uh, habits or catchphrases live on through the years. Uh, what I would say to them is this. I would say, scram, you old goat. Yep, everybody should know what that is. <laughs> Does anyone want to laugh to that? <laughs> oh, yeah, I was on mute. No, I, we should all know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> If you don't, you weren't born and raised in New Hampshire. <laughs> That's for sure. That's right. That's right. In New Hampshire, where kids are entertained by half-dressed men with shotguns. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the name, but there was a federal inspector from the ICC that came up to the railroad. Now, I mentioned that the railroad was a common carrier, and so they were regulated just like the Boston and Maine and the Pennsylvania and all the others, you know, all those rules, they trickled down. But of course, a small railroad could get away with a little bit, but there was one inspector that came up. They were getting ready to put the number 10 rail car in service and he had to sign it off. And so he met, Jimmy Moore at the engine house and he started looking it over and he must have walked around it one, two, three times, who knows, inside, outside, underneath, on top, looking here, looking there, lift the lid of the journal boxes, look at the engine, look at the transmission, the drive shaft, the gearbox, everything, look the trucks over 
check the side bearings for proper clearance. Check that there was vertical clearance above the top of the rail. Do all the checks. And here was this wooden rail car that was self-propelled. So technically it was a locomotive and it needed a cab card. And here were these trucks that had been put in there. Standard gauge to replace narrow gauge trucks or maybe narrow gauge trucks rebuilt with new wheel sets. Who knows? Questions that whose answers are lost to the years. And he poured over it. And at the end of his inspection, he stood back with Jimmy Moore. And he didn't have anything to say for a while. And finally, he drew a breath. And he said, Jimmy, what we have here is a wooden locomotive. And if Washington ever finds out that I signed this cab card, the both of us are going to be looking for new jobs. <laughs> so he signed the cab card off, and that was it. They ran the locomotive back and forth, technically on a common carrier railroad. And that rail car got good usage there and went on to Lowell to be used in and among the mills. And it was eventually returned to Strasburg, Pennsylvania. And I believe that it is still operating in the, on the grounds of the Pennsylvania Railroad Museum. I actually had the opportunity one day to operate that rail car. I suppose in retirement, I should go down there and see if I can do it again. Recollection of the line itself. You know, there, there, here are some factoids I suppose I could mention. The railroad was laid with light rail, I'm sure, probably 56 pound rail. But what I remember, and, and I did change ties, I worked in crews that changed a lot of ties on the Wolfboro branch. What I remember is that it was 75 pound B&M rail. There was a particular rolling or shape that the B&M came up with and, and the, uh, the raised letters on the web would be 75 BM. And you still see a lot of this all around. The thing that sticks in my mind is that the curves were usually plated but the tangents did not have plates on the ties. And along with that, what I remember is that there were two different type of joint bars in use. Uh, some, of the, some of the rails were connected with Weber joints and in 1900, in the annual report, the B&M very proudly proclaimed that they had installed thousands of Weber joints. These were the joints that were going to make the, the ride so much smoother. And ask any railroader today, Weber joint, you know, you, you have to maintain a piece of wood to keep it tight. And if it's not tight, it's loose as anything and it gives a rough ride. So Weber joints, 
that are not maintained are are not a good thing to have. And I want to say, but I could be backwards, it could be that those Webers were in the curves along with the tie plates. What were the bars in the tangents then? Well, this is kind of interesting. The other joint bar that was in use on the Wolfboro branch was a six-hole angle bar. And the B&M did not have many six-hole joint bars. But these bars were a bar that was very common on the old Eastern Division, or maybe even the Eastern Railroad, and maybe also on the West Route mainline, or the original Boston and Maine. The bolts were unique in that they had a T-head. They didn't have an oval neck like a standard bolt of today. Rather, it was a very rectangular T-shape on the head of the bolt. And one of the bars, the inside bar, had a groove that lined up with all six holes. And when you were putting these joint bars together, you'd put the bolts through from the inside, and you'd put the nut on the outside, and as you tighten the nut up, that rectangular shape T would bite into the groove and keep from turning. Well, let me tell you that after a hundred years of corrosion, there's no way that that bolt will come apart with anything other than a torch. And so we didn't like those T-headed bolts at all. But the only other place I ever saw those were down in Rochester on the Farmington branch. Uh, as the Farmington branch was going past Spalding High School and Hanson Pines on its way out to the Spalding Turnpike, I walked a little bit of that track in my youth, and and that line had the same style of joint bar. One of the projects that I was involved with in the summer of 1975 was painting a wigwag signal. Lawrence Brown from the Maine Central uh, brought over an old wigwag that I think came from the Farmington branch somewhere up there in Maine. And it was decided by whoever that that wigwag signal would be erected at Farnold at the uh, Route 109 crossing, right in front of the station building. And a crew went over to Meredith and got a semaphore signal off the Boston and Maine. And they erected it uh, without the bearings. They cut the mast down but they put the wigwag signal mechanism and banner and arm and everything up on top of the old W406 semaphore mast. And track circuits were installed. And one of my jobs was to use a hand crank drill to drill the hole in the head of the rail that the bond wire would be punched into. And I did say the head of the rail. Uh, most bond wires that are drilled in are in the web. Uh, 
but uh, the style that we put in were head bonds. And another job was to do the painting. And uh, I only wish that I knew the orientation of the of the housing that would house the stop banner when it was at rest. I never did get to look and listen at the right angle. But uh, the signal did get put in service and lasted a year or two before it was replaced with uh, modern flashing light signals. And there were three crossings, I should mention, that had those flashing light signals installed. Uh, the uh, Route uh, 28 crossing at Wolfboro Falls by the Excelsior Mill, Route 109 crossing at Fernald, and the Route 16 crossing at Wakefield, uh, that crossing also had gates installed. And the work was done by Phil Lenz and his son, Scott, who came from the main central. They were signalmen, signal engineers, and uh, they did the installation. Somewhere out in the uh, marshes east of Cotton Valley, there was a sapling where somebody stuck a Pepsi can upside down. And if you ever wanted to know if somebody worked for the Wolfboro Railroad, you could ask them, where was Pepsi Junction? Interesting. <laughs> I wonder if it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> Take a putt, putt, putt ride and see if we can find it. <laughs> uh, Brian, it, from pictures and, and videos and, and, and articles on the Wolfboro Railroad, it never seems that they actually used the Wolfboro, or not the Wolfboro, the Sanbornville turntable to turn any sort of power. Uh, it just seems that in photos I've seen that they use it to store cabooses or snow plows and equipment. Was that actually ever used? And I understand that was the keen turntable. Was that ever used to turn any sort of power? I don't factually know that the turntable at Salmonville was ever used to turn power mm -hmm. uh, other than perhaps once to line it up with the way they wanted it to work. Uh, anyone uh, who maintains rolling stock would understand that when you have equipment on a captive line, you get unequal wear on the flanges and the wheels. So it's recommended to periodically rotate or change the direction so that you equalize the wear at least when there is a predominant curve in one direction. Mm -hmm. But I don't actually know that they did that on a regular basis. It wouldn't make sense for the rail car because you can only turn it at Sanbornville. There had been a turntable at Wolfboro for the Boston and Maine, as well as the predecessor railroads, but that was long gone. Mm -hmm. One of the pieces of equipment that was brought to the line was the Brill car, which I believe had its uh, history as a New York Central car. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. It was self-propelled and came with a trailer that was not self-propelled. That car was used uh, for several years on the Wolfboro branch. The turntable at Samburnville had been removed by the Boston and Maine, but it turns out that the Keene New Hampshire turntable was the same general design, if not identical. It was purchased and trucked over to Samburnville and set up in the pit. Although you can't see them today, in the grass or perhaps under the basketball court at Samburnville, there are, or there certainly were, granite cross ties. You could see that there were surfaces that were plain down smooth where the rails went and either side of which was a hole with a broken off spike. Well, this was the ash track where the locomotive's ash pans would be dumped and the ashes would later be uh, loaded into flat cars for distribution as ballast. That makes sense. You certainly wouldn't want creosote wooden ties where where an ash track is. Not, you wouldn't have them there for long. No. <laughs> One of the recollections I have about the trackage on the Wolfboro branch was that it was cinder ballast. And we did all our track work by hand. And it's there that I learned how to dance with a shovel. And I think that the arthritis in my left ankle is left over from those days. <laughs> but I will say that tamping cinder ballast is pretty easy. <laughs> it's a lot easier than gravel. Right. And certainly a lot easier than crushed rock. And the ashes from 250 would be dumped at strategic locations along the track at the end of the day. And often the job in the morning was to go out and spread the ballast, fill the holes, fill the cribs that were low with ballast and dress it up. There was one job in 1976 where I was called back to Wolfboro for a rail job, although it wasn't much of one. The rail on the Wolfboro was 30 feet long and a more common length was 33 feet. And Don Halleck had located and procured some rail that was 33 feet long. And so one morning we showed up about five o'clock, bright and early, and we went into the curve uh, just west of Fernald, and we pulled spikes and cut bolts, and we removed 11 pieces of 30-foot rail, and we rolled in 10 pieces of 33-foot rail, and bolted them up. And of course, when we were 
uh, all bolted up. We had about two inches uh, too much in length. So we had to bar the rail over in the into the middle of the track and get the last joint made up and then bar it back and push it out so that it would fit. And then we had to spike it all back up and we didn't quite have all the spikes, but we at least had every third spike in place in time for the rail car coming over from Sanbornville. And the reason we did this is because the 30-foot lengths were needed in all sorts of different locations for maintenance. And by freeing those 11 sticks up, we then had something to work with. So if you're fortunate enough to this day to go for a motor car ride with the Cotton Valley Rail Trail Club, you'll realize that some of the rail is set with parallel joints and you hear a click, 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 click. And other areas, they're staggered joints, so you'll hear click, 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 click. Click, click, mm-hmm. click, click. Yep. But just west of Fernal Station, you'll hear a strange thing where you go from one pattern with symmetry to this rather odd pattern where one side is 30-foot sticks and the other side is 33-foot sticks. And that's the story behind that. Hmm. Reminds me a bit of um, <clears throat> on the on our branch um, just north of Ashland where they did the relocation and you go from staggered joints to parallel joints. Um, I forget how long that section is up near the shoe tree there, but um, it kind of reminds you of the, the difference in cadence there. That's right. It's a good half mile at least. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'm sure you know Butch Spencer. Yes. Yep. His father was on the crew that laid those panels. Really? No kidding. Hmm. Yep. That was 63 or 4 when they did that? I'll take your word for it. There was a fan trip that went up there, uh, and I think it was not long after that. Yeah, I think that was uh, 64, Rick, because there's a... Yeah, yeah, that fan trip, I think, was in like August of 64. I've seen pictures of... I think it was like, might have even been like an eight car bud train going alongside uh, that long curve right around I-93 north of Ashland. I think the photo you're talking about is in Ben English's book. The, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that must have been the trip that went up to Lincoln in 64 and they had the, the steam engine running too. It was, it was definitely after December of 1961 because it was never bonded. Uh, the Satan and the uh, and they never put the signal bat the signals in there mm-hmm. when they relocated the track in East Concord and when they relocated the track on Northfield Hill mm-hmm. the signal system was in service and there were relocations as a result those signals were still standing when the state took over but at Ashland it was after the signals and all you can see is the southbound signals foundation, which is up by the uh, farm crossing, just south, just south of the shoe tree. Yep. Say that 
five times. <laughs> right. The shoe tree there was uh, the south end. It was a stub end spur. It's a it's a double ended spur now. If you care to look in the bushes, but the south end was Lakes Reach in Chipping, mm-hmm. and uh, high sided gondolas were loaded there. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. I don't know that. I think the shoe tree was just purchased. Actually, I don't think it's. I think it's another company that owns it now. So. All kinds of changes going on. Well, we used to come down into Concord, uh, and if the if the wind was blowing from the south, would uh, would come under the uh, the I ninety three connector past the cement plant and the shed track where we interchanged, and you'd draw in a breath, and you could <laughs> smell cedar, and I'd I'd say to my to whoever I was working with that day, well, we're going to Ashland. Yeah, <laughs> they would uh, get carloads of cedar into the shoe tree, and and boy, you could smell that smell mm-hmm. good good smell. I did have one more smell. question regarding the the central division? Um, talked a little bit with with Bruce Davison, who worked on that operation, and he always mentions uh, Brian Woody Woodard. And I was wondering if you had any interesting stories or just a little information about Brian. I guess he was a pretty interesting individual. Well, by Jesus, let me tell you a thing or two. <laughs> um, Brian Woodard and Richard Mauser uh, worked for the Central Division of the Wolfboro Railroad. And Woody was uh, an ad hoc agent at Lakeport. And he would address a lot of the paperwork. And later on, he would become engineer, and uh, he would uh, become engineer for the Goodwin Railroad and for the North Stratford Railroad many years after the Wolfboro involvement there. And Dick Mauser uh, also uh, would go on to Goodwin Railroad as the conductor usually, although they would swap places. And Woody was from Meredith and had been in construction, had driven trucks and whatnot, so he was no stranger to heavy equipment. He was also an ambulance driver at one point. And Woody uh, was engineer on the RS3, which the Wolfboro numbered 101, uh, but uh, under the Goodwin Railroad, it was numbered number one, quite simply. Woody was operating, pulling a good-sized train up Northfield Hill when one of the cylinder liners had the audacity to drop down into the crankcase. And the five, the main Central 557, which was the original number of the locomotive, lost its prime mover that day. Instant failure. Lo and behold, Herb Goodwin and Jim Moore start asking questions about where they can get a new prime mover and main generator combination. And over in Waterville, the main central had previously taken the 556 into the shop, pulled the engine main generator set, rebuilt it, 
put it in a gondola, wrapped it in tarpaulin, and put it out in the backyard. And while they were working on the locomotive, the 556, there was a fire that burned out the electrical cabinet. Now, Maine Central decides they're going to scrap the 556. And wouldn't you know that right about the same time, the 557 needs a new, uh, needs a transplanted heart. And so the gondola gets plucked out of the yard, sent over to the White Mountains branch. A uh, crane is brought in, and they swap prime movers, and there you have it. So you have the 557 with the 556's prime mover and generator in it. I think to this day you can see this oil stain on the ties where that liner died. Mm -hmm. Woody lived in a caboose in Meredith when he was working for the railroad. I believe that it was a former Rutland caboose that he had bought from Glenn Davis, who was uh, vice president or president of the Green Mountain Railroad for many years. One day, Woody was at home at the caboose, and the train came up, and the crew stopped and marched across the yard and banged on his door and jokingly said, Hey, Woody, want to come see a train wreck? And he said, sure, what the heck, I'll go for a ride. Well, they loaded on board the 44-tonner and left town. And they didn't even get a mile, and lo and behold, they hit a car. And I don't think anybody wanted to ever ask that rhetorical question, do you want to see a train wreck again? <laughs> Jeez. Bruce Davison came over from the Claremont and Concord, and he worked on the Wolfboro Railroad Central Division. Going back to Wolfboro, I would be remiss if I didn't mention David Quimby Toll, DQ Toll. David is a contractor from Brookfield. And he built many of the structures of the Wolfboro Railroad, uh, including the Lakeport Engine House. And I imagine that he may have built the, uh, the Fernald Engine House, and uh, he may have built the Wakefield Station, and he may have helped uh, rebuild the Fernald Station. I don't know that for a fact, but uh, Dave Toll would be another one of the... Uh, folks from the Wolfboro operation. We used motor cars on the on both lines actually and you know one day Edwin and I went out and we kind of agreed that we would see if we could break the speed record with the belt drive Fairmont motor car. And the speed record was 52 miles per hour. And we knew this by counting the number of joints in 22 seconds or whatever the number was for that length of rail. There was a 
formula that would give us our speed. And you know, a belt drive Fairmont motor car is pretty scary at 45 miles per hour, which is as fast as we ever wanted to go. We, that's where we gave up the quest. <laughs> it isn't the ride that'll kill you. It's going off that will. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's everything after the ride. <laughs> It's right. the fall that hurts. Right. That's, it, it's the sudden stop at the bottom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the story with the Wolfboro Railroad Club um, out of the freight depot down there in Wolfboro? I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, let me. I didn't even know there was me... a club. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, 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 the photo that I'm thinking of is uh, mentions a, a gentleman named Dick Libby. I don't know if that's the same person as Richard Libby that you met, or Rick Libby that you mentioned earlier, or if that's a different uh, individual. But <clears throat> Dick Libby is Rick's or was Rick's father. And I got to say that the guy was as involved. Oh, boy. It was involved. Uh, in many, many ways with the railroad. And Don Halleck was looking for the volunteers also. And uh, I think that Dick Libby did a wonderful job in organizing a group uh, that uh, really helped Don Halleck, Don and Roger Halleck get off the ground. The Wolfboro Railroad enjoyed a lot of volunteer uh, assistance throughout the years and one of the individuals who helped in that regard was dick libby Uh, dick lived in wolfboro in a home that overlooked the station yard and in fact his son rick would spend a lot of time operating uh, and maintaining the wolfboro railroad as well The Wolfboro branch uh, was home to a uh, a club, which I think was affiliated with a national organization, a national rail fan organization. And they would have meetings and perhaps even had a model railroad in town as well. The Wolfboro Railroad had a secretary, Carol Fernay, who lived in Wolfboro and helped with all the paperwork and correspondence that were required to make a railroad run. Coming through some newspaper clippings from the Foster's Daily Democrat, Wednesday, May 16, 1979, Wolfboro Railroad may close. An intent to abandon service notice has been filed with the Interstate Commerce Commission by the Wolfboro Railroad Corporation. The action could lead to the permanent closing of the line, which has been in active operation since 1972. I know a few people have mentioned that it might have been the oil crisis that may have contributed somewhat to the the lack of ridership. That's right, too. I think you're right. I have the Manchester Union leader... Tuesday, May 6, 1980. 
On May 31st, the historic Wolfboro Railroad will resume its passenger service along the scenic 12-mile track connecting Wolfboro, Wakefield, Cotton Valley, and many of the area's most scenic locales. The railroad was sold in February of 1980 to the recently organized Wolfboro Railroad Associates headed by Dwight Hilson. Well, you have kicked my gray matter tonight. <laughs> do, do we pick it all, Brian? Hell no. Oh. <laughs> I think I think the seminal moment in my railroading interest was as a one or two year old. I'm told I was in a car that was almost hit by a bud car in Rochester. Mm-hmm. So I figured that everyone else was terrified, and I was. I was impressed with the situation and I was always interested in <laughs> railroads ever since. Yeah. I don't believe that necessarily, but it's kind of fun to think it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Roger that. Awesome. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Thank you, Brian. Okay. All right. XO Tower shutting down. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for today. We hope you enjoyed today's show. And as always, If you're interested in learning more about the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society or joining us, you can visit our website, www.bmrrhs.org.